If you got a Bible, if you want to turn to Mark 15, we're going to continue on talking about the crucifixion. Mark chapter 15. Pick it up in verse 21. And let's pray. Father, I just ask you, Lord, that you'll open your word to our hearts again and help us to see what the Lord suffered on our behalf on the cross and what we can exercise faith for. And so we thank you for doing that in Jesus' name. Amen. Beginning in verse 21, it says, And they compelled one Simon of Cyrenian who passed by coming down of the country, the father of Alexander and Rufus, to bear his cross. And they bring him unto the place Golgotha, which is being interpreted the place of a skull. And they gave him to drink wine mingled with myrrh, but he received it not. And when they had crucified him, they parted his garments, casting lots upon them what every man should take. And it was the third hour, and they crucified him. And the superscription of his accusation was written over the king of the Jews. And with him they crucified two thieves, the one on his right hand and the other on his left. And the scripture was fulfilled, which said, and he was numbered with the transgressors. And they that passed by railed on him, wagging their heads and saying, Ah, thou that destroyest the temple and buildest it in three days, will save yourself and come down from the cross. Likewise also the chief priests mocking set among themselves with the scribes. He saved others. He can't save himself. Let the king of Israel come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. And they that were crucified with him reviled him. And when the sixth hour was come, and there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour, and at the ninth hour Jesus cried with a loud voice, saying, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which is being interpreted, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? And some of them which stood by when they heard it said, Behold, he calls Elijah. And one ran and filled a sponge full of vinegar and put it on a reed and gave him to drink, saying, Let alone, let us see whether Elijah will come to take him down. And Jesus cried with a loud voice and gave up the ghost. And the veil of the temple was rent in two from the top to the bottom. And when the centurion which stood over against him saw that he so cried out and gave up the ghost, he said, Truly, this man was the Son of God. And there were also women looking on afar off, among whom was Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of James the less, and of Joseph and Salome, who also, when he was in Galilee, followed him and ministered unto him, and many other women which came up with him unto Jerusalem. And now when the even was come, because it was the preparation, that is, the day before the Sabbath, Joseph of Arimathea, an honorable counselor, who also waited for the kingdom of God, came and went in boldly unto Pilate and craved the body of Jesus. And Pilate marveled if he were already dead. And calling unto him the centurion, he asked him whether he had been any while dead. And when he knew it of the centurion, he gave the body to Joseph. And he bought fine linen and took him down and wrapped him in the linen and laid him in a sepulchre which was hewn out of a rock and rolled a stone unto the door of the sepulchre. And Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of Joseph beheld where he was laid. We talked last time how the crucifixion of the Lord Jesus Christ is the single most important event that's ever taken place in the history of the world. Most people in the world, they don't recognize that fact. In fact, if you get online, which I did, and you want to see the events that affected the world, and a lot of these polls depending on who took the poll and who answered it, one of them, Christianity's not even in there, or the life of the Lord Jesus Christ, or he's down third on the list, or whatever. It just depends on what poll you look at. Outside of Christmas, 
The world at large really doesn't care about Jesus. Honestly, not really. The Bible teaches us, we know this, that the men that were the ones responsible for crucifying our Lord, they didn't understand. We're saying it's the single most event in history. They didn't understand that. They didn't know who this person was, the significance of who they were killing, murdering, crucifying the Lord of glory and what effect it would have. It says this in 1 Corinthians 2, it says, Paul wrote, but we speak the wisdom of God in a mystery, even the hidden wisdom which God ordained before the world unto our glory. And he wrote this, which none of the princes of this world knew. For had they known it, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. You've got Pilate, you've got Caiaphas, you've got Herod, all the worldly leaders that were involved in the crucifixion, they had no idea who they were killing, like I said, and what effect it would have. You know, Caiaphas thinks he got Jesus, they crucified him and gave him up. Why? Out of envy. Here's this young upstart. He's really popular. The people are following him. They're giving their affection to him. He's afraid, I'm going to lose my position in Rome if this keeps on, and I'm going to lose my income, and I'm jealous of him. He didn't have any idea. That's the only reason he wanted to get rid of him. And Pilate's like, wait a minute, I can't have these crowds. I get in trouble with Rome whenever these crowds, there's an uprising. And I don't want to lose my position here. I've got a future in Rome, or so he thought. And so that's his reason. They couldn't see who Jesus was and what his death was all about. But when you read the Bible, which is God's interpretation of world history, That's what it is. It's God's interpretation of world history from the very beginning in Genesis all the way to the book of Revelation. Everything, all that history that God gives us centers on one thing, the Lamb, the Lord Jesus Christ. You go clear back to Genesis when God pronounced the curse on the serpent. He told him that in this world there are going to be two kingdoms that's going to move on from here. It's going to move on from the garden. Two kingdoms, two seeds. One is going to be the seed of Satan, and one is going to be the seed of the woman, the seed of God. And these two are going to be in a cosmic struggle that is going to be settled where? It's going to be settled at the cross. Because here's what he told him in Genesis 3.15. God said to the serpent, I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your seed and her seed, and he shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. Our Redeemer, we know the Lord Jesus Christ was going to come from the seed of a woman. God was going to be made flesh and through that was going to crush the head of the serpent. And from Genesis, from that point onward, all of human history, the rise and fall of nations, everything in history was sovereignly orchestrated by God to find its climax in the crucifixion. All events pointed and were directed to that. Egypt, Assyria, Babylon, Greece, Rome, all these great world empires and world powers, they all rose and fall under the dominion and sovereign control of God. It didn't just like happen. You know, the world looks at that, well, this is just the way history happened. No, God orchestrated all of it down to the minutest detail. They all came into existence for one purpose and one purpose only. They were going to execute God's plan of redemption and salvation. So he raised Egypt up to give us the Passover type, and they fell. Babylon and Assyria, they were judgment on his people, weren't they? And there's a purpose. It's all in his purpose. 
redemption and salvation and found its focal point, all of that history, in the cross. The lamb we said last week, he was slain from when? The foundation of the world before anything was ever made. It's the purpose God created this world because all of his attributes, all of his glory is seen in the cross. His justice, his holiness, his wrath, but also his love, his mercy, his grace. All of that is seen and demonstrated in the cross. And you think about it. He's not the direct cause of sin, but it is through sin that we have the cross. And God is glorified in all of that. That's how we see God in all of his glory in the cross. And Paul said this, For I determined not to know anything among you save Jesus Christ and him crucified. Now we know that the crucifixion wasn't the only thing that Paul talked about, was it? I mean, he talked about a lot of different things, didn't he? But his point in saying that is he didn't know anything but Jesus Christ and him crucified, I believe is, it colored everything that he spoke about. Everything came out of that, whether you're talking about husband and wife relationships, ethics, fellowship, truth. For the Christian, everything is shaped by the cross and comes under the shadow of the cross. That's the way it works. That's how Jesus showed his love by denying himself and giving himself as a sacrifice for us. That should affect us. The Bible says that's how we know what love is. He gave himself so we should give ourselves for others. Our love is shown in light of the cross is what I'm saying. So we deny ourselves our own will, the way we want to do things for the sake of others, that sacrificial love. But it all comes, it's all from the cross and has that influence in our lives. For example, when Paul says, husbands love your wives, he doesn't say because they're cute, does he? He doesn't say that. So I'm saying everything comes under the cross. It affects everything in our lives. The reason he gives is, is even as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for it. Jesus sacrificed on the cross himself for his church, his bride. And if you read Ephesians 4, what was the purpose? What is the purpose of God's redeeming love? It is to make us holy. We can never forget that. That is the purpose. It's Titus 2. He died to make us holy. When we're chastised, why does he chastise us as his children? It says because he wants us to be partakers of his holiness. That's the purpose. What is Romans 8? All things work together for good to those that love God that are thee called according to his purpose. But what's his purpose? He goes on to say to be conformed to the image of his son. That's why all things are working out to our good, to be conformed to the image of his son. And we need to keep that in mind. And that all goes back to the cross, doesn't it? And the life of the Lord Jesus Christ. But he said a husband should love his wife, be willing to sacrifice for her good. That's what it means. That's what love is, to be willing to sacrifice for her good. Many times, emotions in that will not be involved. I said this last week. I am not saying that God is devoid of emotion towards us or affection. So hear me, I'm not saying it. And I think a husband and wife's relationship, I mean, it's going to be kind of miserable if it's all void of emotion, isn't it? But that is not the main thing, is it? Emotion is not the main thing. Love is deeper than emotions. And God's love, I'm saying, is more than a feeling. I think there's a song, more than a feeling. (laughs) I'll go into that. But here, like I said, it's not void of feeling. But here, true love and God's love and our love for others is making a decision for another's happiness at our own expense. 
Isn't that what the cross is telling us? And so true love is a sacrifice whether the feelings are there or not. And that's why Christian marriages don't need to end in divorce like the world's because the world's is based on emotions, feeling how we're getting along and we can't stand each other. We're going our separate ways. You know, I watched this documentary on Vietnam not too long back. And one thing that broke my heart, it really did. I'm serious, is there was this man that was captured as a POW and they kind of follow him as a thread through this documentary. And he endured, I mean, years of just unbelievable torture and things that happened to him. And the one thing that kept him going through all this was the thought he was going to be reunited with his wife and kids. And it happened, you know, I believe they showed a meeting at the airport. They're hugging, kissing, and everything. And I mean, I, I was like moved by that. I thought, man, here's his family getting united because they would talk about her and how she was and him and how he was when they were apart. And I'll tell you what really broke my heart even worse than that was, though. At the end, when they tell, well, here's what happened to all these people you're following through, him and his wife get divorced like a short time after they get back reunited. Love and marriage, my point in saying that is, it has to be built on more than feeling and affection, doesn't it? Because that can ebb and flow. Always under the cross, Christian marriages, there should be affection, but the mainspring of love is the painful sacrifice that our Lord made on the cross. Isn't that how we should view our marriages? And if he was willing to do that for us, then we, we show that same love not to our mate. And that, that's all relationships, isn't it? I mean, we're talking about husbands and wives, but that could apply to all relationships. True love is a sacrifice despite feelings. We said last time we were saying that in the crucifixion in, here in Mark, he doesn't talk much about Jesus and what exactly is involved in the crucifixion. You can get books out there that they'll describe in detail what happens in a crucifixion and the pain that's involved and all that stuff. And Mark doesn't get into that much, doesn't go into the details. For one reason, everybody back then, they had seen people crucified. More than likely, it happened all It was a public event that happened everywhere, and they could see the pain that was involved. No one had to tell anybody. There's a lot of pain involved in that. And Mark doesn't get into all of that. Jesus, I believe, he felt intense pain. That's no small thing, no small part of it, coursing through his entire body. You know, we use the word excruciating. You know, somebody asked, you know, what, what, did that hurt? Was that? Oh, it was excruciating. The pain was excruciating. And you know what that word means? From the cross. X means out of and cruciate means cross, crux. That's what that word means. Excruciating pain means out of the cross. They used the cross to describe the most intense pain you could feel. And that was very real for him. But like I said last week, I do still think the worst thing he suffered was the mockery, the rejection, the ridicule, the total isolation from any words of comfort and support. Because you think about it, we've known people that have lived in different degrees of pain, but been relatively happy because they've got support from their family and friends. You can endure a lot when you have that support, but there's people that can be in good health. And when they're dealing with rejection and isolation and feeling like, you know, man, I don't have a friend in this world, I mean, that leads to despair, doesn't it? And suicide sometimes, sorry to say that, but that's just the way it is. The thing with the Lord, I think he can endure the taunts of the crowd and, and them spitting on him and all that. But when that darkness covered the earth, which represented the Father turning his face, 
And when he experienced that, that was when I believe he experienced the fullness of the curse on our behalf. He comes out of those three hours and it's my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? I just need to say this if you can bear with me. The Bible makes it clear that sinners are under the wrath of God. We talked about this some last week. John 3.36 says, He that believes on the Son has everlasting life. And he that believes not the Son shall not see life. But it says what about those that are outside of Christ? It says, but the wrath of God abides on him. All of us, and that's for all of us at one point in our lives. Nobody was born not under the wrath of God. We like to think there was something about us that he liked, that he saved us. We were all under his wrath. There was nothing in us that he liked. He was actually angry with us. Ephesians 2.3, it says this. Paul wrote that we were by nature the children of wrath, even as others. We're all in the same boat. And we have to see that. We have to see that to appreciate grace. Romans 1.18 says this, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who hold the truth in unrighteousness. The fact that the wrath of God is revealed against men that refuse to obey the Lord Jesus Christ, refuse to live holy lives and want to live however they want to, and that's the way things are becoming more and more, is nowhere clearer seen than in the book of Revelation. Because when his judgments, when the Lord's judgments begin to fall on the earth, when you read this in Revelation 6 at the end of that chapter, it says the kings of the earth and the great men and the rich men and the chief captains and the mighty men and every bond man and every free man hid themselves in the dens and in the rocks of the mountains and said to the mountains and the rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him that sits on the throne and listen to this, and from the wrath of the Lamb. You're saying, I don't want to think about the Lord like that. Well, that's the way the Bible describes him. The wrath of the Lamb. He is going to come back in wrath. The grapes of wrath. This is what's going to happen. And it says, and who shall be able to stand? That's the question. There's only one way out of that, and that's by surrender. And it's better to do that now because most won't then. Their days kind of passed. Terrible time. So what is our hope? I mean, John the Baptist, when they're coming, the multitudes are coming, the crowds had said we're coming. What does he say to them? You brood of vipers. He's saying this to the Jews. You brood of vipers. Who told you to flee from the wrath to come? There's a wrath to come. That's just what the Bible teaches. And John the Baptist, who told you to flee from the wrath to come? God did if he did. I believe he spoke that to all of us. I saw there was wrath coming to me, and that put a holy fear in me. It caused me to seek the Lord. And that was God's grace. The implication, though, when John says that, who told you to flee from the wrath to come, is that there is a place to flee from the wrath to come, and there is. And that's what we're talking about today. It's the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. This wrath that's coming, that's the one shelter. There is no other shelter. There is no other religion. There is no other way. He is the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. He is the only sacrifice. We have to see that. He is the only sacrifice and what's God's provided for the world. And what a provision he's made, though. 
He hasn't kept it hidden either, has he? All of us, I said, we're under God's wrath and curse. And Jesus bore what we want to talk about. He bore that curse to the fullest extent. If you would, put something there in Mark and turn back to Galatians 3. Galatians chapter 3, beginning in verse 10. But it says in Galatians 3.10, For as many as are of the works of the law are under the curse. For it is written, Cursed is everyone that continues not in all things which are written in the book of the law to do them, but that no man is justified by the law. In other words, doing the right thing, being a good person, that no man is justified by the law in the sight of God. It is evident for the just person, the righteous person, is going to have to live how? By faith. And the law is not of faith, but the man that does them shall live in them. But look at verse 13. It says, Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law, being made a curse. That's what happened to him on the cross. He was made a curse under the wrath of God. That was what was coming our way. And he was made a curse for whom? For us. Praise God. For it is written, Cursed is everyone that hangs on a tree. And here's why, verse 14, that the blessing of Abraham might come on the Gentiles through Jesus Christ, that we might receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. And to think the baptism of the Holy Spirit is not a big deal, it's <laughs> saying he took the curse so we could be blessed with it. Including speaking in tongues. Amen. That's what it's all about, the baptism of the Holy Spirit and speaking in tongues. I want to look at that verse 13 for a minute. It says, Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law. And we've been taught, but just to repeat it, the word redeem means to buy back and deliver someone like a slave. A person has sold themselves into slavery or been taken captive, however that happens. A price many times would be paid for their deliverance. They could be bought out of slavery. And someone is willing to pay it, to buy their freedom. And that is what it's telling us happened at the cross. And what was the price, though, that was set? They'll set a price for slaves. Somebody could or couldn't pay it. Sometimes a slave could earn it, work for years and years and years, and pay it off themselves. But what was the price that was set for us? It was so high that there's nobody. He paid a debt we could not pay impossible. If it was left to us, we need to realize this, to appreciate what the Lord Jesus Christ did. If it was left to us, we would be in utter despair. We would be. Put something there in turn. If you would, just I want to look at Psalm 49. If you got five fingers, well, I'll have you using them all here in a minute. <laughs> I want to read this Psalm in light of the cost of redemption. Men they sometimes think they can buy their redemption. It's impossible. Psalm 49, it says this. He says, hear this, all you people. Give ear, all you inhabitants of the world, both low and high, rich and poor. He's saying, everybody, listen, all of you. He says, my mouth shall speak of wisdom, and the meditation of my heart shall be of understanding. I will incline my ear to a parable. I will open up dark saying upon the harp. Wherefore should I fear the days of evil when the iniquity of my heels shall compass me about? Look what he says in verses 6 through 9. They that trust in their wealth and boast themselves in the multitude of their riches, none of them can by any means redeem, there's the word, his brother, nor give to God a ransom for him. 
for the redemption of their soul is precious and it ceases forever, that he should still live forever and not see corruption. For he sees that wise men die, likewise the fool and the brutish person perish, and leave their wealth to others. Their inward thought is that their houses shall continue forever, and their dwelling places to all generations. They call their lands after their own names. They don't realize their end's coming. He says, nevertheless, man being in honor abides not. He's like the beast that perish. This their way is their folly, yet their prosperity approved their sayings. Like sheep they are laid in the grave, death shall feed on them, and the upright shall have dominion over them in the morning. And their beauty shall consume in the grave from their dwelling. But look in verse 15. But God, he's the only one that can, will redeem my soul from the power of the grave, for he shall receive me, Selah. Be thou not afraid when one is made rich, when the glory of his house is increased. For when he dies, he shall carry nothing away. His glory shall not descend after him. And though while he lived, he blessed his soul. And men will praise thee when thou doest well to thyself. He shall go to the generation of his fathers. They shall never see light. Man that is in honor and understands not is like the beast that perish. He's saying people think they're somehow going to continue on, their money's going to somehow do something for them, and he's saying your money's not going to do anything for you. It is only God that can redeem a soul. Totally up to him. That's what that's telling us there, isn't it? Only God can do it. First Peter 1.18, talk about the price. He says, for as much as you know, you were not redeemed with corruptible things as silver and gold, what were we redeemed with? But with the precious blood of Christ, as of a lamb without blemish and without spot. God had to be the one to redeem us at tremendous cost. He had to become a man, and he had to suffer the agonies of the curse. He became a curse for us as a man. And we have to remember this. Let this sink in. Jesus was not Superman. All of what he suffered felt like we would have felt it. That pain he felt was the same. That getting driven into his hand here and the spitting and the being smacked and hit on the head and punched in the face when you don't see it coming, that hurt him as much as it would hurt me or you. He wasn't immune to it just because he was God in the flesh. His humanity was full humanity. He went through all of that, and we need to also remember he never had to. He didn't have to. How much suffering, we can ask ourselves, would you endure for somebody else that you didn't have to? The humiliation he suffered, I would say, was just as real as the pain. That tells us how much God loves us, doesn't it? That he was willing to do that for us. <laughs> and he's not getting anything out of us, believe me. He gives us a perfect illustration of this. This We're talking about redemption of what it means in his love for us in the book of Hosea. If you read Hosea, he gave that prophet about a humiliating a task as he could give him. In the first chapter, the first few verses, he tells Hosea, this is what I want you to do because I want to show through you my love to Israel. But I wanted you to go and marry a prostitute. Now, how hard would that be? What man in his right mind wants to marry a woman that's just been used by, that's, you know, my marriage. <laughs> that's who I'm going to marry and be with the rest of my life, this woman that's been used by all these other guys. 
And it gets worse than that. The woman he marries, Gomer, you read the rest of the chapters 1 and 2, she continually commits adultery against him. She eventually leaves Hosea for another adulterous relationship that becomes slavery of some sort. She's bound. She's bound, a slave, and an adulteress. And God speaks to Hosea, and he tells him this in chapter 3. He says, I want you to buy her back from slavery, and not only that, I want you to love her. Here's what it says. Then said the Lord unto me, Hosea 3, Go yet, love a woman beloved of her friend, yet an adulteress, according to the love of the Lord toward the children of Israel, who took to other gods and loved flagons of wine. So I bought her to me for 15 pieces of silver. He had to go, and, and he also had to throw a little grain in. I just didn't add that, but that's what he did to buy this woman, buy Gomer back. She's done him wrong. There's nothing in her for him to love her, is there? And yet God says, I want you to love her. Well, think how hard that would be. He did it. He did it. How much affection do you think he had for her when he did all of that? Probably not much, but he was still willing to sacrifice and be humiliated for her sake, wasn't he? In light of that, here's what it says in Romans 5, verses 8 and 9. God demonstrated his own love toward us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And he goes on to say, much more than having been justified by his blood, we shall be saved, and here's that bad word again, from wrath through him. It's said that, well, the God of the Old Testament was a God of wrath, and the God of the New Testament is the God of love, and I'm saying there is no contradiction in the Bible. The New Testament speaks just as much as the wrath and judgment of God as the Old Testament does. It does. But it says that if he's done that, if he has saved us, we don't have to be afraid of the wrath that everyone else does, whether it's the wrath that comes on the day of judgment or the wrath that's going to fall in tribulation or any time. God will protect his people. He'll honor his people through that. So it's one thing, I would say, to demonstrate your love to a faithful wife that cooks your dinners and gets your slippers for you. And it's another thing to sacrifice for a woman that would stab you in the back, running around on you and spending all your money. It makes it a lot harder. And that's why marriages end in divorce, because no one's going to sacrifice for someone like that. But yet, God did for us. Didn't he? He didn't love us when we were the faithful wife, but when we were his enemies, running around on him, stabbing him in the back. Because whether we want to admit that or not, until a person is converted and born again, the Bible says we hate God. That's everybody. And you think, well, I didn't hate God. Oh, no, you did. You're kidding yourself if you think you didn't. Were you obeying the Lord Jesus Christ back then? <laughs> I wasn't. There's this other account of this soldier in Vietnam who jumped on a hand grenade, saved the life of his fellow soldier and friend. I mean, and that is truly a heroic thing he did. And it was truly an act of love, wasn't it? He did. He took that for me. But let me ask you, this is what we need to see. Would that same soldier die on a hand grenade that was near a group of enemy soldiers? Ones that were trying to kill him? Would he do that? But that's exactly what God did. He took the full impact of the grenade of the curse that was ready to explode in our foxhole when we were his enemies intent on killing him. 
because we need to see that we were in the crowd that was crying out, crucify him, crucify him. That, we were in that crowd. We were responsible for putting on that crowd. Yet, despite that, he died for us and prayed this, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. He prayed that prayer for me and you. It wasn't just for the people standing right there. That prayer was for me and you. Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Isn't that what Paul said? I mean, I was a blasphemer and injurious. I did a lot of things. I'm the, I should be the least of the apostles. But God had mercy on me because I did it ignorantly in unbelief. Didn't know what he was doing. Father, forgive them. They know not what they're doing. We'll usually redeem something and buy something at a great price because it's worth something. But there was nothing in us that it was attractive to God because we were the abandoned baby of Ezekiel 16. Y'all familiar with Ezekiel 16? It's a great chapter. And it says there, God came by, there's this baby lying out in a field, abandoned, lying, it says, polluted in your own blood. And that was us. We're lying polluted in our own blood when God found us. And he said about that baby, nobody had any pity on that baby, and nobody had any compassion. And yet God said he looked at us under his wrath, dying in our sins, headed to hell, and he looked at us, lying polluted in our blood, and he did have compassion and pity on us. Amen, praise the Lord. That's what he did. Ezekiel 16, 8 says this, Now when I passed by thee and looked upon thee, behold, thy time was the time of love. So that's what the love is. He sees that maybe nobody wants, and he says, but that was your time of love. Because God said, I spread my skirt over you. I covered your nakedness. Yea, I swear unto you and entered into covenant with you, saith the Lord God. And he says, at that point, you became mine. Not because we were worthy. Not because we were good. Not because we didn't deserve the cross. We did. We deserved all of that. But he said, I looked, I had pity on you and covered your nakedness, had mercy and compassion when no one else did. And when I did that, when I put my electing love on you, my electing radar on you, you weren't going to get away because he says, I entered into covenant with you and you became mine. Amen. I mean, that is a great thing. He adopted us, the ugly babies. He looked on us and had mercy. Nobody wanted us, but God did. Go back to Galatians 3. It says there, Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law being made a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone that hangs on a tree. So when he's talking about the curse of the law, what's he talking about? He's talking about Deuteronomy 28. Deuteronomy 28. Turn back to Deuteronomy 28. Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law. Now look what it says in Deuteronomy 28 and verse 1, and it says, And it shall come to pass, if you shall hearken diligently unto the voice of the Lord thy God, observe to do all his commandments, which I command thee this day, the Lord thy God will do what? Set thee on high above all the nations of the earth, and all these blessings shall come on thee. And he says in verse 8, The Lord will command the blessing upon you in your storehouse, and all you set your hand to. Bless the land which the Lord gives you. He'll establish you to be what? A holy people. Verse 9, he will establish thee to be a 
holy people unto himself. So that's when the blessing of God is on you, you'll be a holy person. And as he has sworn unto thee, if you will keep the commandments of the Lord thy God and walk in his ways, and all the people of the earth shall see that you are called by the name of the Lord, and they'll be afraid of you. Verse 12, the Lord will open up to thee his good treasure, the heaven to give the rain unto the land and all his season, and to bless all the work of thine hand, and you will lend unto many nations, and thou shalt not borrow. You won't have to, because God's blessing will be on you. You've got 14 verses there of blessings. And then he goes on, beginning in verse 15, and we read there, But it shall come to pass, if you will not hearken unto the voice of the Lord thy God, to observe to do all his commandments and his statutes, which I command thee this day, that all these curses shall come upon thee and overtake thee. And there are four times more curses listed than blessings. And he says, verse 18, Cursed shall be the fruit of thy body, the fruit of thy land, the increase of thy kind, the flocks of thy sheep. Verse 22, the Lord will smite you with consumption, fever, inflammation, extreme burning with the sword, blasting mildew, and they shall pursue you until you perish. Verse 28, the Lord shall smite you with madness and blindness and astonishment of heart. Part of the curse is mental illness that people seem to have more and more these days that need more and more medication. And he says in verse 38, Thou shalt carry much seed out into the field, and gather but little in, for the locusts shall consume it. You'll plant vineyards and dress them, but neither shall thou drink of the wine, nor gather the grapes, for the worms shall eat them. Verse 43, The stranger that is within thy gates shall get up above thee very high, and he shall come down very low, and he shall lend thee, and thou shalt not lend to him. He'll be the head, and you'll be the tail. Moreover, all these curses shall come upon thee, and you shall pursue you and overtake you till you be destroyed, because you hearken not unto the voice of the Lord thy God to keep his commandments and his statutes, which he commanded thee. Verse 47, because you serve not the Lord with joyfulness, with gladness of heart, for the abundance of all things. And we could read on and on and on. The penalty... For not obeying the Lord is what? And not continuing in all things in the law is what? It's the curses, all those curses that are listed. That's the world, isn't it? The world, they're fighting all of these curses constantly, trying to get on top of them, trying to find cures for them, whatever. And where did this all begin? This all began back in Genesis, didn't it? After the fall, because of what? Sin. The full penalty of sin is death. And it's like God saying, here, let me give you a little foretaste. of The curse is like, this is not as bad as death, but let me see how bad things can be so it'll catch your attention maybe and cause you to repent and turn back to me. But back there in the garden, he pronounced curses on first the serpent, then the man, and then the woman because of sin. What does it mean to be cursed? Is there a way to summarize that? I think there is. You're in Deuteronomy. If you would just turn back one book to Numbers chapter 6, verses 24 to 26. Look what it says. The Lord bless thee and keep thee. The Lord make his face shine upon thee and be gracious unto thee. The Lord lift up his countenance upon thee and give thee peace. What we have there, the beginning of verse 24, the beginning of verse 25, the beginning of verse 26, it's where he's saying the same thing in different ways. 
The blessing of the Lord, verse 24, is when the Lord makes his face shine upon thee, in verse 25, and the Lord will lift up his countenance upon thee, in verse 26. To have God's blessing in your life, and we should all have experienced that or should experience it, is to have his face shining towards you, and that means his presence is with you. What would the direct opposite of that be? Having the blessing in the face. It'd be having God's face turned from you, to have him curse you, to have him abandon you. So you wouldn't have the light of his countenance shining on you. You would be in what? Darkness. That's why Jesus multiple times called hell outer darkness, because it's a place void of the presence, the light, the favor of God. That's the extreme place of utter cursing, isn't it? That's what it is. This is what I want to get to. Back to Galatians 3. We need to see here in Galatians, that's what the curse is, is not to have God's face shining on you. That's what the world is under. They're dealing with the curse. If you look in Galatians 3.13, it says, Christ has bought us back from the curse of the law. He was made a curse for us. We're not blessed with curses, are we? We don't have to live under that, do we? Not the curses, but it says what? That the blessings of Abraham might come on us. The blessings of what? The blessings of Deuteronomy 28. Even if you're God's child, you might experience the curses in the sense of chastisement. That may happen, but it's not permanent because once you repent, the curse will be lifted. It's just a means of getting your attention, getting your right back. Because a Christian will never be fully cursed by God, ever. It's impossible. Jesus bore the curse. Here's what we need to see. The full cup, the full cup of God's wrath and curse was drained by the Lord Jesus Christ on the cross. When he experienced that darkness for three hours covering the earth, he was experiencing the curse and the turning of the Father's face that those in hell will experience. So he was aware in his human nature. He never ceased to be God. Not JDS, right? He was fully aware in his human nature of a complete withdrawal from God. And that is the worst part of hell. God's face turned forever away from a person, anyone there. It's terrible. It really is. I'm not just saying that. It's almost unimaginable for eternity, never stopping. And not just having his face turned, but his wrath is poured out. Man, I want to say this parenthetically. He wasn't angry with Jesus, though, on the cross. Not angry, just the opposite. I would say, to just use a phrase, he, he never loved the son more than at that moment. He didn't bruise the son or the word is crush in the Hebrew, which is Isaiah 53. He didn't bruise the son or crush him because he was hateful to him, did it? It was a judicial punishment. He crushed and wounded Jesus, poured his wrath and turned his face and forsook him for our sakes. That's what it's saying. He took the curse for us, for our sakes and his justice. We need to see that too. He had to punish our sins to the fullest extent that they deserve so that he could forgive us. Because God, we need to see this. His wrath is not something to be embarrassed about. You wouldn't want to serve a God that wasn't just and holy. For him to just see sin take place and justice, punishment, not to be executed, God would not be just. 
And that's what other religions teach. He just waves his hand because he's merciful. He is merciful, but there's a basis for his mercy. That's the dilemma of the cross, as these theologians will say. God wants to have mercy on his people, but he also has to be just and punish sin. How can he do that? And that's what I said. Justice and mercy kiss at the cross. He is both just. Our sins, your sin, whatever sin you've ever committed in your life, it wasn't just brushed off the table. It was literally punished in the Lord Jesus Christ. Every sin for a believer, all believers, were punished. Nothing was looked over. That's why he said in Romans 3, he had to do that to be just and the justifier of all those Old Testament saints that he overlooked their sins because the blood of bull and goats couldn't bring forgiveness. They all pointed towards the Lord Jesus. But he's saying, I couldn't let those sins go. They'd had to be punished. And it was in Jesus. And for us, it's back looking back to the cross. We're not getting away with anything in that sense. Our sins were punished. If I can put it that way, he had to be just. But listen, it shows us, doesn't it, the unfathomable, and I mean that, love that God has for each of us because he had to punish us. He had to. Had to punish sin. He's holy and just. That part is non-negotiable. Do you know that? He didn't have to show us mercy at all. But God, to be God, he had to be just and holy. It's his nature. Had to be. But we deserve punishment. We deserve the curse, all the sickness, misery, and ruin. And yet, we deserved all that. The love of God is shown in this, that he sent his son, his beloved son, to become a curse in our place. And all of the curse was fully laid on him. All of it. I'm talking about all of what we read in Deuteronomy 28. All those curses that plagued the world, they were laid on Him. All of them. We need to see that. We do need to see that. Christ has redeemed us, bought us back from the curse, being made a curse fully for us. Surely, it says there, surely He has borne our pains and carried away our diseases. Surely He has, because He bore that curse. That's part of the curse, isn't it? took all the punishment for our sin. There's nothing left to punish. If He took all of our pains and sicknesses, how much is left for us? (laughs) How much should be left for believers? And that's how we need to fight the devil, because here's what we need to see. He has no right to put on us what Jesus bore on the cross. Jesus bore the curse, that's what we just read, and the penalty and the punishment for sin in the crucifixion, what we've been looking at, and our Lord was fully punished in our place. How could it be any worse than what we've read, what he went through? How could it be any worse? Fully punished. Because of that, the price has been paid. He took the curse like the scapegoat. You confess the sins. He was sent out from the camp never to be seen again. He bore our sins, our sickness, the deliverance. Any demonic oppression, it has no right over us now. It did before. We were sinners. We were cursed. But he's borne the curse for us. That's what it says. No longer to fear being punished by God. There is therefore, Romans 8.1, now no condemnation, no judgment, no wrath to them which are in Christ Jesus. There is therefore now no condemnation, no fear of judgment if you're a believer. Jesus says, Verily, verily, I say unto you, 
John 5, He that hears my word and believes on him that sent me has everlasting life and shall not come into condemnation, but is passed from death unto life. It's already happened for us. Amen. We have everlasting life. We're not waiting to get it. That's what a Catholic does. They have to wait to get it. They're not sure they're ever going to get it. We can know that. He has no right to punish us. And that's why Jesus says what he says in Luke 18. He says, ought not this woman, that woman bowed over for 18 years, being a daughter of Abraham, whom Satan has bound, lo, these 18 years. Ought not this woman whom, didn't say God was blessing her, did it? It said Satan has bound her. He had a right at one point, but he's saying she ought to be loose from that. She's a daughter of Abraham. The blessings of Abraham are on his people. That's what it's saying. I'm not this woman, a daughter of Abraham, whom Satan's bound low these 18 years, be loosed from this bond on the Sabbath day. We need to see that is where his power over us in disease and all was defeated, was at the cross, at the crucifixion. It was fully. Turn back to Matthew 8. Matthew 8, it says this, starting verse 14. It says, when Jesus was coming to Peter's house, he saw his wife's mother laid and sick of a fever, touched her hand, and the fever left her, and she arose and ministered unto them. Verse 16, and when the even was come, it says, they brought unto him many that were possessed with devils, and he cast out the spirits with his word and healed all that were sick. Verse 17, that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by Isaiah the prophet, saying himself, took our infirmities and bare our sicknesses. The reason the devils could be cast out and the sick healed were why? They didn't have a right to oppress these people anymore. Amen? Amen. The devil doesn't have a right to oppress you with mental illness. Has no right. You've got to stand your ground, though, on that. Feed it at the crucifixion. And that's why Acts 10.38 says, God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Ghost and with power who went about doing good and healing all that were oppressed of the devil for God was with him. We've got to see sickness is not from God. It is from Satan. It's spiritual. And he has no right to afflict us unless we give it to him. So I'm not saying we can't help trials, can we? That's not what we're talking about. But we need to fight in our trials and not accept what he's doing in a trial. Amen? A trial can go on. That's no blemish on you. We have no control over that, do we? Mark 11, 24 says, we believe when we pray, and it's up to God when he gives it to us. Manifest the answer. We believe when we pray. But listen to this quote from Bevington. Bevington is just great. Got this highlighted in my Bevington book. I remember this quote. And he says this. He says, now we will get back to the subject of healing. He was talking about something else. I want to get back to healing, he says. He says, I'm pretty well convinced that a large portion of our sickness is on us just because we allow Satan to put it on us. When Wednesday night comes, Satan knows that all he has to do is just afflict us a little. He knows that there are only a few who will not allow him to do so. He deals out his aches and pains in quite large quantities to those who will allow him in order that they may have some excuse to stay at home. Now, I didn't write that. Bevington wrote that. Really, I'm not thinking of a single person. And I'm not trying to get at anything with that. Not at all. I'm telling you the truth. But he went on to say, I tell you, God wants us to get to the place where we will believe the promise I am the Lord that healeth thee, and take a firm stand against Satan's bold attacks. 
stand for our blood-bought rights. He said, I have fought him face-to-face -face on this line. And he says, we produce no effect at arm's length, and he's too great a swordsman for us to tackle him on that line. And you read his book, and that's the way it was. He was not going to let the devil put something on him. He's, he just, he talked to him, he'd command him, he'd quote promises to him, and he went through trials. They weren't all over in a minute either, were they? He's just realized, hey, he has no right to do what he's trying to do to me. I don't have to accept this because he paid for it on the cross. I'm going to glorify God by showing what he paid for in my life through health and healing. Amen? Amen. All right, we turn back to Mark 15. And we look at verse 34 there in Mark 15, and Jesus cried out, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? That's the height of the curse he's experiencing there. But you take the why out. Take the why out. My God, my God, you have forsaken me. And he's asking the question, why? And the answer is, so that we will never be forsaken. That we can be his children. Because God says this, this is Isaiah 62, 4. He says, it will no longer be said to you, to Israel, he's saying it, but he's saying it to us, no longer be said to you forsaken. You will never, no longer be called forsaken. Nor to your land will it any longer be said desolate. He said, but you will be called my delight. And your land married, for the Lord delights in you. That's why he went to the cross. We never have to be called forsaken again by God. Never have to fear that. And the writer of Hebrews says, he himself has said, the Lord himself has said, I will never leave you, nor will I ever forsake you. People in here have to deal with rejection, being forsaken, depression. You can look to the compassion of the cross. Jesus was completely forsaken so that we don't ever have to be. And that's here. Ever depressed with rejection, depression, that's where to look, is to the cross. The Lord crying out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? If you're a Christian, you never have been forsaken. It may feel like it at times, but to use the old worn out political phrase, he feels your pain. But I would say he's felt your pain to the utmost. So he can totally relate to what it feels like to be forsaken to feel that way depressed rejected because of that he'll have compassion on you or me any of us during those times when we have time and need won't he you know there's so many ways you can look at the cross and his life but you know he lived and suffered the things he did so that he can be what hebrew says is a merciful and compassionate high priest to us too and also, he's gone through any temptation we've gone through, yet without sin. And the reason for that is that he can come and help us. He knows what we're going through. He really does, no matter what it is. And that's why I'm going to end on my favorite verse, one of my favorite verses. Hebrews 4. I love Hebrews 4. Because it says, We have not a high priest which cannot be touched with the feeling of our infirmities or weaknesses, but that he was in all points tempted like as we are, yet without sin. But it says, this is, he is not a God, he's not a high priest, he's not a savior that can't be touched or enter into our weaknesses, the feelings, the struggles we're having. He says, let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Amen? Amen. God's faithful. Amen. That's right. <laughs> we're delivered from the curse. Praise the Lord. Let's pray. 
And Father, we thank you, Lord, for the revelation of your word, and we thank you most of all, Lord, that you've come into our lives, you've opened our eyes to help us see, to, to show us ourselves that we could turn to you and see that Jesus took the punishment that we deserved. He bore that curse for us, paid the penalty for our sins, but also bore all the results, all the results of sin, the extent of the curse. His love goes as deep as the curse goes. And we just thank you for that, Lord. And I ask you'll open all of our eyes and hear anyone that needs to see a trial they're in, that he fully bore their curse. It's not anything they have to bear. And I just ask you'll show us all of us that clearly, Lord, that you do love us and that you will deliver us when we cry out to you. And you are a faithful God. And we thank you for that in Jesus' name. Amen.